Father, as your word says um, in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and um, um, that is, I, I hope we can sing and pray that that is what our heart's desire is, but at the same time, Father, you know our hearts and and thank you that you are a, a patient God, you are a loving God, and you are so very, very gracious. You give us what we don't deserve, and you're very merciful. You withhold those things that we rightly deserve. And so, Father, I'm sure if truth were told, if we look back over this last week, probably not everything we did, thought, said, reflected that attitude. And um, we wanted to express that to you, though, this morning in song, that your Holy Spirit, Father, would continue to do that work of transforming us and shaping us and, then, and drawing us into your, your presence more and more, so that more and more that can truly be, be sung with, with absolute confidence that we can say, for to me to live is Christ. And that the things of this world would all kind of just recede more and more into the background. And, and above all things, you would be our highest pursuit. And you would be our, our complete and total um, focus and attention. But again, Father, we, we have failed many times and you keep loving us, it's endless, it, it is unfathomable, it's everlasting, it's unconditional. And I thank you, Father, that you look down upon your children and you see them clothed with the righteousness of Christ as beloved sons and daughters. Um, so thank you, Father. Direct our our hearts and our minds, Father, as we spend some time in your word now. And I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Glad you're here at Fellowship Bible Church. And um, I want to take you back a few years, 1830. I was in third grade at the time. <laughs> Feels like it sometime. Yeah. 1830, Colonel Robert Taylor was doing some archaeological digs in uh, the ancient city of Nineveh, present-day, modern-day Iraq. And he came upon an amazing, a remarkable find that has incredible implications, uh, uh, biblically speaking, in terms of uh, verifying um, some biblical accounts. As he was digging and doing these archaeological finds, he ran across a a hexagonal uh, cylinder, clay, um, they call it a prism. Uh, it's now in the British Museum called a Taylor Prism. They found another one uh, very similar to it. It's in the Chicago um, uh, Museum. Uh, but this prism, written in cuneiform all, on all six sides, but in one portion of this, uh, of this prism uh, were found these words. 
As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. And as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. Now those were words that were written by or spoken by uh, the great emperor or king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And in 701 B.C., history tells us that's exactly what happened. The Assyrian army had come, and it surrounded Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, the king of Israel, was, was uh, besieged and surrounded. Now, what's, again, so remarkable about that discovery is that three places, three major places in the Old Testament, this very story is referred to in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, and again in Isaiah, chapters 36 uh, through 39. And this morning, um, I, want to, I want to tell that story. Like we were back maybe in Sunday school and, and hear that wonderful story, talk about that wonderful story of Hezekiah, uh, the story of, of trusting in God in, uh, in, in very difficult times. So I invite you to take your Bibles, and we're going to start in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 18. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, we get the kind of historical beginning here. It came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz, and in our study of Isaiah, we know that Ahaz was a very wicked king. He was a godless king. In fact, we know from history that Ahaz had set up pagan worship all over Judah. He had um, included in the, in the whole religious rites of the Jewish people uh, pagan worship, even to the point of sacrificing children. Ahaz was a wicked, wicked man in setting up all these practices. But his son Hezekiah was different. And verse 2 said that when he was 25 years old, he became king. He probably, was probably a co-regency with his father. But he became king. And what do we know about Hezekiah? Well, verse 3 says that he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He did right in the sight of the Lord. In fact, according to verse 4, it says that he removed the high places he broke down all those sacred altars that his father had set up. Last part of verse 4 says he cut down the Asherah. The Asherah was that, was that um, female goddess, that uh, a pagan goddess, um, very uh, evil, sinful, sensual practices. That he, he cut down those worship poles, the Asherah poles. And it also says that he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the, son of Is, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. You get the idea of the wicked heart of the people. They took something that was a remembrance of what God had done, and they actually venerated it. 
an icon that they, that they bowed to and they worshiped before. And Hezekiah said, we're not having any of this. This stuff is gone. And he breaks all that stuff. He destroys all those uh, reminders and places of worship, even this bronze serpent that Moses had made. And then it says in verse 5 and 6 that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, and then look at this next phrase, nor among those who were before him. (laughs) That's quite a statement. I mean, think of the people in that list, like David and Solomon. He said, this guy trusted God like no other. And it says in verse 6 that he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. He clung to the Lord. The word to cling there, clung, is the same word that is used in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a, a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's this most intimate relationship. And, and Hezekiah clung to the Lord God. In his intimate relationship, in his walk of faith with God, Hezekiah, there was no rival to him. He clung to the Lord. Not only that, we go over to Second Chronicles chapter 29. It says, in, in his first year of his reign... In the first month of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square onto the east. He, the, the, the whole temple worship had been, by his father, left in disrepair. People weren't even bothering going to the temple. There was really no temple to go to. And so he gave this order and command. In the very first month of his reign, And he brought back the the worship of God as it had been laid out by Moses in the Old Testament. And they cleaned and they scrubbed and they repaired and they painted and they got it all fixed up. And I think it says in about 16 days they repaired it and cleaned it. And he got the priests and the Levites together. And in verse 10 11 of 2 Chronicles it says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his his ministers, and to burn incense. And he he gives this charge to the Levites and to the priests. And so he reinstitutes. He calls them back into service. And so after all the cleaning of the temple and getting it all ready, he gathers the people from all over the, the land. In fact, there's even... Uh, remnants of people up in the northern part, and he invites them as brothers and sisters of Jehovah God to come and celebrate the Passover celebration, to come and worship their God that had been neglected for all these years. And so they brought their, their cymbals and harps and lyres as in the days of King David. And um, he knelt before the Lord And he led his people into this worship and restoration of the Passover. And it uh, must have been an incredible occasion as this worship of Jehovah God was rediscovered. It says in uh, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord 
with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And it says, so they sang praises with joy and they bowed down and they worshiped. This King Hezekiah, there was no one like him that followed and no one like him that ever came before him. God used him in a mighty way. But not everything was joyful in the world. As we've been studying the book of Isaiah, we know that the great power, great military and, and political power of the day were, were the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were on the move. In fact, in Hezekiah's sixth year of his reign, the Assyrians had come to the northern kingdom. Samaria was the capital and had defeated the Israelites and had taken the Israelites captive in, in the brutal way that the Assyrians worked. Um, just brutal um, savagery. And they would take the remaining people that didn't die in the sieges, they would take them and cart them off, hooks in their nose, as they would lead them back to the land of Assyria and disperse them among other nations. And then they would bring their people, Assyrians, and repopulate the area. In the sixth year of Hezekiah's reign, that's what was going on to the north. Isaiah had been warning Judah that if they didn't repent, they would suffer a similar fate. And that's exactly what happened. We read in 2 Chronicles 29, and thus Isaiah did throughout all Judah. He did what was good. He did what was right and true before the Lord his God. And every work which he began in the service of the house of God and law and commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered because he clung to the Lord. I mean, this was a good guy. But the very next verse, chapter 32, verse 1, says, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break them, break into them for himself. After all this faithfulness, after doing all these um, good and, and right and godly things, after rebuilding the temple and, or repairing the temple and, and reinstituting the worship of God, after tearing down all the false places of worship, knocking down the astral poles and, and the bronze serve, after doing all of these things, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Sennacherib was the ruthless ruler of ancient Assyria. It was the major footprint of the Near Eastern world. In their brutality and their ruthlessness, they slaughtered anyone that stood in their way. And he came with his armies and he invaded Judah and good King Hezekiah. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Because as the 
Assyrians were laying siege to the city of Lachish, which was about 30, maybe 30 miles um, southwest of Jerusalem. It was a, a major fortified city of Hezekiah's kingdom. And Sennacherib was laying siege to Lachish. King Hezekiah knew that the writing, handwriting was on the wall, that they could not um, stand against this mighty army of the Assyrians. Uh, but he, in Jerusalem, was fortifying it anyway. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 2, Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem. And so he decided, verse 3, with his officers and warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. And so many people assembled, verse 4, and they stopped up the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? Jerusalem's water supply came from the spring of Gihon and would flow into the city, but it was open for anybody to mess with, and why they were vulnerable. And so Hezekiah said, we can't have this. And so in preparation, knowing that Sennacherib and the Assyrians were coming, he redirected that. Verse 5, he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down, and he erected towers on it and built another uh, outside the walls and strengthened the Milo in the city of David and made the weapons and shields in great number. And he appointed military officers, verse 6, over the people. He gathered them to him in the square at the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them. And he said, now be strong and courageous. Do not fear, do not be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all of the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one that is with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is Jehovah our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. If you've ever been on one of our tours or a tour to Israel, you may have um, had the privilege of, of walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. Anybody gone through Hezekiah's tunnel? Yeah. In uh, our, um, I'm not sure if that's going to be on the agenda on next year's trip. Uh, and if you're interested in that, call the church office. Uh, we've got one planned, I think, in December, January of 2019, 2020. But this is the tunnel that Hezekiah cut, 1,750 feet. You can walk through that yet today. Has uh, water maybe calf high, uh, and, and you, you walk that uh, tunnel, and you can still see where the pickaxes of 2,800 years ago, as one team of Hezekiah's workers worked one way and the other team worked the other way, and they met, and there's a plaque there that says, this is where Hezekiah's... Uh, 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 Builders came and they met in this city and they built that tunnel to protect them. Sennacherib is besieging Lachish and actually captures it. This is a, what's called a relief. It was also discovered in the palace of Sennacherib in ancient Nineveh. Archaeologists found this uh, uh, magnificent room huge room, and there were these clay tablets, uh, stone tablets actually, and, and they're eight feet high and 80 feet in length around this room. And this is called the Lachish room. And Sennacherib, uh, to um, 
puff himself up and to show his glory as a victor, he had commissioned these things to be made. And you can see on that picture to the, to the right is Sennacherib sitting on his throne. And probably one of his general's officials is before him. But to the left you see people bowing. And those are the Judeans. Those are the Jews who have been conquered from Lachish. Those are his prisoners. 200,150, he said, throughout that region. And he took them off into captivity. The days were numbered for Judah. There really was no hope. The king of Assyria had demanded payment. We'll work out a deal, Hezekiah. You give me 11 tons of silver, a, a ton of gold, and it'll go well for you. And Hezekiah went into the temple and he took the silver there and he, they, they peeled off the gold overlays and, and the solid gold pieces and burned it down and they, they came and they gave it as tribute to Sennacherib there in Lachish. Sennacherib, however, did not leave. He did not leave Judah. He was an evil, wicked man. And he turns his attention now, after receiving all this money, he turns his attention now to Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story in Isaiah 36. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36. And Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now, it was the 14th year in King Uzziah's reign that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with his large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Now this name, Rabshakeh, is probably not a personal name. It's a term, and it was used in uh, uh, Second Kings, I believe, uh, with two other people. It's, a, it's an official title. It would be like he sent his chief commander, or, or maybe it has some connotations of ambassador, but he, he was probably the chief military uh, commander. He was probably that guy in the relief standing before the throne of Sennacherib. Rab, the the Rabshakeh. And he sent the Rabshakeh to Hezekiah, and he stood, it says, by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field, and we won't take the time to turn there, but that same phrase is used back in Isaiah chapter 7, some years before, 20-some years before, it was Isaiah who stood at that very spot, and he spoke to Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. And he said, Ahaz, you better trust the Lord. And now here comes the Rabshakeh. And in that very spot, he tells the people of Jerusalem, you better trust Sennacherib. It says that, we'll pick up the story in verse 3. He says, it says that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was one of the household 
who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, they, they came out to, Rab, to this Rabshakeh guy. And this official Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? Notice, by the way, he doesn't say, Say to your king, Hezekiah. Hey, say to Hezekiah, that the great king, the great king of Assyria, has a very simple question. What is this reliance you have? What is this confidence? What is this rest that you have? Who are you trusted in? Verse 4, the Rabshakeh said, Say now to Hezekiah, what is this confidence? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Who are you trusted in, Sennacherib is telling Hezekiah. How dare you defy me? How dare you um, hole up in, in your capital city? Who do you think you are? More importantly, who do you think you're trusting? Verse 6, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, and remember, Previously, that was one of the things Isaiah had come to Hezekiah. He said, look, don't trust, don't make foreign alliances. Don't go down there in Egypt and Hezekiah, in a moment, he wasn't perfect, in a moment of weakness, he listened to his officials and tried to get help from the Egyptians to come up. And Sennacherib is saying, what are you trying to do? I mean, this crushed reed on which a man leans, why it's just going to go into his hand and pierce it. It's just a, a splintered piece of wood. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in Jehovah our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And it said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now, the Rabshakeh got it a little wrong. They had seen all the places of worship had been destroyed by Hezekiah thinking that those were places of worship to Jehovah God, which they weren't. And the Rabshakeh is saying, well, obviously he's destroyed all those. Are you, are you honestly thinking that you are going to trust in Jehovah God? Not even Hezekiah does. He's destroyed all these things. Now, therefore, verse 8, here's a better deal. Come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. A little psychological warfare. He's taunting them. So I'll tell you what, i got a great deal for you. I'm only going to offer it once, though, and you better grab it. I've got 2,000 horses. Put some riders on there. Hey, we'll do battle. We'll, we'll even give you the armaments. We'll give you the horses. And of course, he knew Hezekiah, the people couldn't come up with 2,000 soldiers to ride them. And so the representatives of Hezekiah go back. Well, before that, verse 11, Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak in Aramaic. We all understand it, but don't speak to us in Judean for the hearing of the people on the wall. 
And Rav Sheka said, has my master sent me only to your masters to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? And so in verse 12, the Rav Sheka stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean in the Hebrew language, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says that king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Jehovah. Yahweh saying, the Jehovah, Jehovah God will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given in the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. Come out to me and eat each of you his vine and each of his, uh, of his fig tree and drink each of his waters of his own cistern. In other words, we've got good food for you. Or eat your own dung and drink your own urine. What's it going to be? You got to trust Jehovah God? That's what Hezekiah wants. Well, we got a lot better deal. We got a lot better offer. Trust King Sennacherib. And then he says in verse 17, and I'll, I'll come and I'll take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. We'll haul you away to a far better place, a far better place that you've ever been. So beware, verse 18, that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And he goes through this list. I mean, verse 20, who among the gods of these lands have delivered them? Boy, he, he makes a very good point. Could you, can you name one deity? Can you name one nation whose God has stepped up to the plate and you think your God is going to show up? Come on, I've got a lot better deal for you. A lot better deal for you. And they went away. Eliakim and Shevna and Joah Verse 22 says they came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. And they report back to Hezekiah in chapter 37. Verse 1 says that when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and he entered the house of the Lord. And he sent his men, these spokesmen for him, and he sent him to find Isaiah and to plead, have Isaiah plead before the Lord. Verse 6 and 7, so the servants of the king came to Isaiah, verse 6, Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says Jehovah, Yahweh, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and he'll return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And so they go back and they, they tell this and they basically say, no deal, Rabshakeh, you go tell Sennacherib, no deal. And so Sennacherib comes back with another response, verse 10, thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by saying Jerusalem shall not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, 
You have heard what the king of Assyria has done in all the other lands, destroying them completely. So will he, so will you be spared? Verse 12, do the gods of these other nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them? And he goes back to that theme. Are there other kings that survived? No. Are there other nations that survived? Did other gods come through for those people? No. And so when Hezekiah got this message, it was a written message this time. Sennacherib had put it in writing, and he gets this message, and he takes that, that message, and he goes into the temple before the Lord, and he prays. Look at verse 16, Hezekiah's prayer, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God and you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heavens and the earth. And so incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them as a reproach to the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. It's true, God. I mean, we know this. He's speaking truth. And they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but they were work of men's hands, wood and stone, and they've destroyed them. Father God, we know this is true. But now, O Lord, verse 20, O Lord our God, deliver us from this hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Hezekiah had nothing left to do, nowhere to turn. And he's on his face with that letter from Sennacherib in the temple of God, and he's he just crying out to God, the God that he had clung to, the God that he had so tried to honor. Isaiah sent back a response to Hezekiah. He tells him, because you have prayed to the Lord God about Sennacherib, jump down to verse 33, he says, because you have prayed, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own name's sake and for my servant David's sake. I will take care of you, God says to Hezekiah. Did he? Trust me, God says, for I will take this Sennacherib and dispose of him. Trust me. This is what God had been asking all along. You go through the, the book of Isaiah as we've been studying, and over and over again, this is, this, this is the one thing that Jehovah God had asked. Time and time again of Uzziah and Jothan and Ahaz and now Hezekiah, of all the people, just trust me. Don't rely on other foreign alliances. Don't, don't look here. Don't try to figure out this and that. Just, just trust me. I alone am God. I'm the God that Isaiah saw enthroned in the heavens. And the seraphim 
crying out, holy, 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 totally separate, totally other. There's no one like me. Would you just believe that? Would you just stop trying to figure out life? Just trust me. I will deliver you. Did God answer? Boy, did he. Then the angel of the Lord, verse 36, went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. He returned home, and he lived at Nineveh. And it came about, as he was worshiping in the house of his god, Nesquak, that his two sons, Adremelech and Sherezer, killed them with the sword. And they escaped from the land of Ararat, and his other son, Esarhaddon, became king in his place. And thus ended Sennacherib. Well, archaeologists have dug up the Lachish room, eight feet high, 80 foot long reliefs of the Battle of Lachish, as we saw one of them. But they have never found a Jerusalem room. Oh, the, the hexagonal prism that was discovered, Sennacherib says, I caged Hezekiah like a bird. But it never said that he conquered them. Nowhere in the annals of history does it ever say that Sennacherib and the Assyrians conquered Jerusalem because they didn't. By the way, it's always fun to see how secularists try to figure this out because we've got all this historical data, but, and then we've got the biblical account. Someone was telling me last night at the Saturday night service, they've been to the Chicago Museum Oriental History, and they, they've just a few weeks ago, and they saw this uh, Sennacherib prison, this hexagonal prison, and there's a little explanation, you know, on the side of it, and there's a little extra paragraph that says kind of in so many words, and oh, by the way, the Bible says that the God of Israel destroyed Sennacherib's army. Hezekiah and his people were miraculously saved. Hezekiah's prayer was answered. God delivered him. Now, let me share with you some lessons. There's so many things to be shared. My goodness, so many things to be shared. And if you're in small groups, community groups that do the kind of sermon notes and apps and stuff, have fun with this because there are just so many things that could be shared. But let me share with you four things real quickly. Four lessons from Hezekiah. First of all, you don't have to live a life defined by your past. You don't have to live a life defined by your past. Hezekiah had an awful upbringing. How would you like Ahaz as a father? He was immersed in paganism, child sacrificing. Ahaz was a wicked, wicked man. And that was the upbringing of Hezekiah. But he broke from that dysfunctional past. He determined to follow and serve God, and he did. You may know the name Jim Daly. He's the president of Focus on the Family. He does the daily broadcast of Focus on the Family. Do you know his background? Age five, his alcoholic father abandoned the family. 
Four years later, at age nine, his mother dies of cancer, basically orphaned. He and his siblings are, are put in various foster homes, some good, some horrendous situations. And then one day, someone shared Jesus with him when he was older, and he trusted Christ as his personal Savior. His life was transformed. Oh, it was a, a horrible past. But in his autobiography entitled Finding Home, he wrote, I am living proof that no matter how torn up the road has already been or how pothole-infested it may look ahead, nothing, nothing is impossible for God. Folks, we don't have to be defined by our past. Sins that we've done, a wretched life we may have lived, or an environment in which we grew up in, abuse, pain, and suffering. Because the moment we trust Christ as our personal Savior, the Bible says we become new creations in Christ. We become identified with Jesus. His righteousness now defines us. We are new creations in Christ. And the old has passed away. All has become new. And in Christ Jesus, we are made new. We don't have to be defined by our past. Second of all, living faithfully for God does not exempt us from trouble. Remember 2 Chronicles 32? After all that Hezekiah had done so faithfully, uh, Sennacherib the king came and invaded. After all the, you know, sometimes we have this, almost this entitlement mentality. Well, you know, I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm doing all these things, God. I'm serving you. I'm living for your glory. Why would that happen to me? Because we live in a fallen world of sin. We live in a sinful world, and, and according to the Bible, it, it, it is held in the grip of the evil one. Suffering and sorrow is part and parcel of living in a fallen world. Bad things happen to good people all the time. And just because we may be living for God's glory doesn't mean that we earn the right to live it pain-free. In fact, so many times it's God's people who are on the front line of, of suffering. As, as an example to the world, Philippians chapter 1, 29, Paul writes, For to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It's a grace gift. When we're all happy, I'm sure, to hear of Pastor Andrew Brunson's release on Friday from Turkey. And I don't know if you happen to see that prayer in the White House. Powerful. For two years, he was subjected to these fraudulent charges and held in jail in Turkey and the suffering of his family and of himself and praise God, he was released, but hundreds of thousands of Christians aren't released around the country. And they suffer every day for the cause of Christ. Bad things happen to good people all the time. This is not a world of health, wealth, and prosperity. To you it has been granted to suffer for the cause of Christ. In a couple of weeks, we'll be remembering the persecuted church. Some of our own people that we work with, just the reports we've had recently from China, Pakistan. Our missions pastors, Scott McManigal and Jim Poole, were leaving last week to go to India, and they couldn't because the far more radical Hindu government is making people sign a statement that you won't come into India 
for any religious purposes. We can't go to India again unless we want to lie. The church of Jesus Christ is suffering incredibly. No, living faithfully for God does not exempt us from trouble. Here's the third thing. The essence of all temptation is to get us to trust anything and anyone other than God. Rabshakeh said, so Hezekiah, you know, what, 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 what is this confidence you have? Who, who are you trusting in? Who do you put your trust in? It's, it's, you know, God told Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die of that forbidden fruit. And then the serpent comes to Eve and says, you surely shall not die. Who are you going to trust? God or, or, or sound common sense? You surely shall not die. Who are you going to believe? And of course, Eve chose the serpent. Why? Because Genesis 3, 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Hey, I can benefit by this. I can find life. I can make it better for me. And she took and she ate and she gave to her husband. Where are you going to find life? That's what Rabshakeh was saying. Wait, wait, wait. Hezekiah, you can't even find people to mount horses. Then we'll give you the horses. Or the great king Sennacherib. You know, there are Rabshakehs that come all the time and are whisper in her ear. Who are you going to trust? in this moment. You think God is going to, come on, think for yourself. The temptation that, that lures us away and say, do you really want life and, and excitement? You've got to think for yourself. You've got to grab it for yourself. God is, is just distant and, you know, Rabshakeh's want us to be practical deists. He just up there started, but he doesn't care about the little minor things of your life. Come on, think for yourself. And it lures us and it draws us away from trusting in him. And all too often we can believe the lie that real life is found if we just figure it out ourselves. Here's the last one. The object of faith is far more important than the amount of faith. Always, always. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You're the creator. There is no one like you. Holy, holy, holy. You're separate from all. You alone. As he's digging that tunnel, as we read in 2 Chronicles 32, greater is he in us than the one that is with them. The very nature of the term faith demands a, an object, does it not? Faith in what? You always have to have a, a, in what? Faith is just one of those dangling words. Faith in what? The value of faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. What gives value or worth to faith is always the object of, I can walk across a, a piece of ice with great confidence that it's only one inch thin, and I'll get wet. Or I can walk across a two-foot thick slab of ice on that pond 
in all fear and trembling. It's, it's not the quality of my faith. It's always the object of my faith. A weak faith only shows that I have a weak view of the object that my faith is in. And folks, this is where it comes. Now, this is Christianity in shoe leather. Every one of us has a responsibility. Every one of us has a responsibility to discover this God for ourselves, to learn of him, to grow in the grace of the knowledge of the Lord. My goodness, if you depended on a 45-minute sermon to tell you, and that's all you got about who God is, you can't live the Christian life that way. You can't. You got to know him yourself. You got to cling to him like Hezekiah did. You're responsible for that. I'm not. I am for me. Know your God and live your life and trust him. And it starts, it starts by knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And you may be here today, and you may think that in order to get to heaven, I know that Jesus died on the cross, he paid for my sins, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do that baptism class just to make sure. I'm just going to give a little extra money to that, uh, those uh, hurricane victims. I'm just going to do just a little bit more. And you've just bought your ticket to hell. Because salvation is found one place. It's complete, 100%, full trust in Christ and Christ alone. Believe on Him. That's where it starts. And then the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in Him. It's a daily walk of faith. Don't shelve God after salvation. The same type of, of dependent trust that gets us to heaven is the same type of dependent trust that we need to walk every day and not listen to Rabshakeh's, to cling to our God like Hezekiah did. He alone, he alone is God. Forgive me for going over, but let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, as we, as we sing our praises to you, burden our hearts with greater um, a heart of, of wanting to cling to you, of hold tightly. There is no one, no one but you. And you're fully dependable. And Father, even if Sennacherib would have come and destroyed Jerusalem and killed Hezekiah, you would still be the faithful God. Always, Father, greater are you than the one that is in the world. For you have the final victory. It was secured for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. Your love is everlasting. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.